Preview was planted by East 91st Street that noticed they had a whole bunch of their people from this side of the river that were traveling a long way to go over to East 91st, and so they planted Prairie View. College Park is a similar church over at 96th and Town, where a lot of people are driving a long way to get over to that campus, and they thought it might be time to create a Fisher's campus, and we've been working with them as a host for some of their prayer meetings and worship facilities, and it's allowed us to develop a pretty good relationship with the folks at College Park. When Ben knew that he was going to be gone for a couple of weeks this August, we got one of our elders to preach next week. But uh, for this week, we brought a guest for over from College Park. He's Luke Humphrey, and uh, it's a privilege to have him. I don't know much about him. Talked to him for about three minutes beforehand, but I learned that he and his family are originally from central Indiana, and they uh, trained at Bethel Seminary, not Bethel, Bethlehem, forgive me, sorry, Bethlehem, in uh, Minneapolis, and uh, they're back here for a couple years at College Park, and that he can go toe-to-toe with Tom Coors on SAS. So I uh, give a warm Prairie View welcome to Pastor Luke. Well, thank you. One of those is not true. I'll let you guess which one that is. Um, as Josh said, my name is Luke Humphrey. Um, I'm on staff at College Park Church as a pastoral resident. I'm married to my beautiful wife, Laura, and we have two daughters, one who is outside the womb, named May, and one who is in the womb, who will be outside the womb, Lord willing, in December, uh, who we have named Karis. Um, we are originally from the central Indiana area, uh, went to Purdue to get my undergrad, and then moved to Minneapolis to do my MDiv at Bethlehem Seminary. Uh, Bethel is a big seminary. Bethlehem is a small seminary. I've dealt with it for the last four years, so it's okay. Uh, one of the beautiful things about visiting other local churches that you're not regularly attending is to be able to see the unity that we have in Christ through the Spirit. The gospel is rich here at Prairie View Christian Church. It was evident from the singing. It was evident from the communion meditation, from the offering meditation, from the prayer at the very beginning. The gospel is on display here, and it's exciting, and I'm grateful to Pastor Ben and the elders for the opportunity to preach that gospel this morning and rejoice in it with you all. And I know that College Park is very grateful for Prairie View Christian Church. Uh, as we seek to be fellow workers, fellow laborers, to see the people of Fishers, Indiana, reached with that gospel that we've sung about, that we've prayed about, that we'll preach about this morning. And so, in light of that unity, let's go to our God in prayer. Lord, we are grateful for the Holy Spirit, grateful that we are dependent upon you, Lord. You do not leave us by ourselves, but you have given us your spirit. We're grateful that you have united us, not only to Christ, but to his people. And Lord, as we can be here worshiping you together, we rejoice in that unity that we have. Lord, I pray that you will bless this morning, that you bless the preaching of the word. May it be uh, faithful and may it not return void. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, for those of you who follow current events, which is probably most of you, due to social media and Facebook and things like that, uh, it's very, very clear that we, right now in 2015, are living in a unique time in American history. Pretty much everyone would acknowledge that. Some people would say it's a good thing, it's progress. Some people would say that's a bad thing, it's regress. 
but everyone agrees with Bob Dylan. The times, they're a-changing. Uh, this was very evident when my wife and I moved back to Indiana at the beginning of June. So we were in Minnesota. We moved there originally four years ago. And when we found ourselves coming back to Indianapolis area, we were coming back to a very different state. Things had changed over the last four years. Something that is true of Minnesota during the time that we were there, something that's true of a lot of different states throughout our country, things have changed. Here's a quick snapshot of what we've seen over this last summer since we've been here. It's been a unique summer to be in Indiana. It's been a unique summer to be in America. And three events highlighted just how markedly different things are and yet also how similar some things are. So we started the summer with the issue of racial harmony, a, uh, or should I say the lack thereof. An African-American church was gathering together to study the Bible And a white man walked in with a gun and opened fire, killing those members of the Bible study. This launched the media into weeks and weeks of reporting about the issue of the Confederate flag and how people interpret that flag, the things that people read that flag to be saying. And it was just very, very clear that our world, our country, is broken when it comes to the issue of racial reconciliation. We, as Christians, preach a gospel That says the dividing wall between Jew and Greek has been broken down in the body and flesh of Christ. And it was evident that our country does not see that broken down yet. In a year that's been plagued with report after report of racially motivated violence, I found myself longing for a world that would reflect the true reconciliation that we have in Christ where race and skin color are not a hindrance to fellowship in the gospel. Then, less than ten days later, the highest court in our country ruled that the traditional understanding of marriage was in need of modification. As people looked at that ruling, they assigned different interpretations to it. Most people would rule that the Christian sexual ethic of one man, one woman married for life was in need of modification. It was outdated. And at worst, it was even bigoted to be able to say that. And as I just read the different rulings, uh, read the reports and followed the news and the media and Facebook afterwards, I found myself just longing for a world that recognized that the picture of marriage points to the reality of how Jesus loves his church and dies for her and sacrifices himself for her and serves her and washes her and cleanses her. Something that is expressed in marriage between a man and a woman. And I was reminded as I was following these reports that that understanding is becoming less and less common in society. Things are changing. It's becoming different. Then, in mid-July, the Center for Medical Progress released its first of what to this date has been seven undercover videos showing the travesty of abortion up front and personal. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that in the past month, more people than ever before have been exposed to the horror of abortion firsthand. And I found myself shocked and appalled as I've watched these videos to this date. I've watched six of the seven. I want to be able to see that and to feel that horror. I found myself shocked and appalled that our country, which many would claim to be a Christian country, and which itself claims to be the greatest country in the world, has slaughtered one 
million of its own children every year, and some of those children are having their body parts sold. Shocked and appalled. And I found myself grieving, having a two-year-old, having a child in the womb right now, grieving and longing for a world that recognizes the value of human life, all human life, the way that Jesus and God the Father, God the Spirit, and God's people ought to recognize that value. As Christians, we believe that God's word, not our own personal autonomy, not our own personal freedom, not our own desires, God's word is the standard of how we ought to live, how we ought to view life. And I was reminded just more and more that most people in our nation do not hold to that same standard. And so, as I was wrestling with these three massive things all coming together in one summer, I was wondering this question. What should Christians do in the midst of a broken world in which we're being pushed further and further to the margins? Less and less people are holding to the values that we hold. Less and less people believe the things that we believe. How should Christians feel about this? How should Christians think about this? How should Christians respond to this? What should Christians do? I felt more like an exile, like somebody who is living in a foreign land over this last summer than I have in my entire life. And as I've wrestled with this question and this issue, the Holy Spirit has brought to mind one passage over and over again. It's a passage I've been soaking in all summer. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. It's 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. This is what Peter writes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, Though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Now, some of you might have heard that passage read and are thinking, what in the world does that have to do with what you just said? And that's what I hope to show you by the end of this sermon. That's what I hope to show you this morning. How this passage relates to where we are right now. So, if there's anything that you walk away from this message, 
you can only take one thing with you. Here it is. God's merciful acts in the lives of exiles causes us to bless him. Let me say that again. God's merciful acts in the lives of exiles causes us to bless him. And in order to understand that, in order to get to that reality, we're going to look at three channels, three avenues of God's mercy shown here in 1 Peter 1. God's mercy to exiles in giving them new birth. God's mercy to exiles in trials. And God's mercy to exiles in preaching. Now, in order to fully understand how uh, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12 relates to us, where we are right now, we need to recognize that Peter wrote this letter to a very specific, a very particular group of people. He describes his readers, if you look at verse 1, chapter 1, he describes his readers as elect exiles. These people are Christians who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire, living in the dispersion. And Peter uses the term exile, or some of your translations may have foreigner, in order to describe them. And this is incredibly, as I was just thinking about this, this is incredibly enlightening to see how we ought to view ourselves. See, these readers that Peter has aren't literally exiles and foreigners, at least not likely. So why does he choose the term foreigner to describe them? No, these people are exiles based upon their identification with Christ, based upon how they relate to Christ's kingdom, where their citizenship lies, who they worship. Exile or foreigner describes the believer's relationship with the unbelieving world. And that is really important for us to get if we're going to understand verses 3 through 12. We may live, as Christians... In 21st century America, we may live in a particular society. We may work in that society. We may go to school in that society. But we are not home here. No, we are exiles. We are strangers. We are foreigners in a strange land. Now think about what it looks like to be in exile. Um, Think with me for a minute. When my wife and I moved from Indiana to Minnesota... We were reminded that we were exiles, that we were foreigners, every single Sunday afternoon in the fall. Why is this? Well, as everyone around us was getting excited for a Vikings game, we were exiled Colts fans. We were the remnant. And at the risk of maybe stretching the analogy too far... How we lived as Colts fans affected the way that we related to the world around us. We prioritized our schedules differently. The Colts played at 4 o'clock. The Vikings played at 1 o'clock. We were going to make sure we watched the 4 o'clock game and not the 1 o'clock game that our neighbors were prioritizing. It affected how we defined success. As Colts fans, when the Vikings won, we didn't care. But when the Colts won, we were excited. Which, let the record show, was much more frequent than when the Vikings won. And any time we went to the office or went to the classroom, we didn't keep up with what was going on in the Viking world. Though naturally we kind of caught some of that. We were living in Minnesota. But we prioritized going to ESPN.com and seeing how the Colts were doing. Why is that? Because we were defined by our status as Colts fans. And it affected the way that we related to a Viking world around us. 
We were markedly different. And while that example might be a lighthearted one, the description of believers as exiles in 2015 America has significant bearing upon the way that we view our lives. Our relationship with our surrounding culture is markedly different because of our citizenship in heaven. We are citizens of a different kingdom. We have different values. We have different routine. We have different pursuits. We have different interpretations. We have different definitions of success. We are markedly different. Though as exiles, we live and work in this world, our chief identity is that of Christian, of that as one identified with Christ. You guys just did a sermon series on the book of Daniel. In the Old Testament, the Jews who were living in Babylon didn't view themselves as Babylonians. No, they viewed themselves as exiled Jews. They were defined by their Jewish identity and not as Babylonians. And as we read through the book of Daniel, we see how this impacted the way that they live. Daniel was more than happy to offer King Nebuchadnezzar counsel, to offer King Darius counsel. And he would even interpret the dreams that God gave them. But... Though he could do those two things, he wouldn't worship his God, and he wouldn't even eat his food. He was defined by a different identity, that of Jew, rather than Babylonian. And likewise, as Peter reminds us, we ought to live as Christians in the city of Indianapolis, city of Fishers, city of Carmel, rather than as Carmelites or Fisherites, or Indianapolisites. We are defined as exiles living in this city. Our identification with Jesus Christ defines who we are. And because of that identification, we view things like racial harmony, marriage and sex, and human life in a distinctly Christian way. So, now to our passage. This background is really helpful as we dive into verses 3 through 12. Because what Peter says here in verse 3 is carefully chosen as his first words to a group of exiles. As he crafts his letter to them by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the very first thing he says is verse 3. And what is that? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing in Peter's mind that exiles need to hear is this. Blessed be God. But he doesn't stop there. Everything from verses 3 through 12 in the original language is just one long sentence that modifies this initial call to bless God. It's like Peter can't help but stumble over his words as he heaps praise upon praise upon praise to God. Believers who find themselves as exiles and foreigners in their relationship with the world around them, they need to be confronted right off the bat and reminded that of first importance in our lives is this call to bless God, to glorify God, to give honor and praise to God. Throughout the remainder of the letter, people will show how exiles ought to think about different things, things like holiness, things like suffering, things like authority, and even things like marriage. But right here, he frames it 
around the primary goal and trajectory of the Christian life. The glory of God. And he takes ten verses, which is ten percent of the entire letter, to reflect upon and to remind his readers of the many ways in which God has shown them mercy. This reminder is intended to be fuel for worship. As they go out into their daily lives as exiles, they have ballast in their boat. They have fuel and for their fire. As believers live as exiles, recognizing the manifold mercies of God in their lives keeps us from despair and orients our eyes to heaven in a Godward direction. We bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, having oriented the believers' lives and calling around the glory of God, Peter then launches into three channels of God's mercy. God's mercy in new birth, God's mercy in trials, and God's mercy in preaching. Verses 3 through 5 focus on God's mercy to exiles and giving them the new birth. Look at verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In God's mercy and God's kindness, he has caused his children to be regenerated, to be born again. Through Jesus' resurrection. And this reality of the new birth is why we have become exiles and foreigners in the first place. We've been born into a new kingdom. We've been born into a new family. We have a new citizenship because we have a new birth. We have new affections, new desires, new thoughts, new speech, a new mindset. In short, we have a new identification. We are Christians. This was very popular in the 1900s. Born again Christians. But we're not just reborn so that we can exist in this world as exiles. It's important and helpful as that is to see we are born again to something. We're born toward something. Look at verse 4. Born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, And unfading, kept in heaven for you. Through the new birth, we don't only receive a new identification, that of Christian. We also receive a new inheritance that comes with that identification. When children are born into a family, they receive the right of inheritance that comes with being a member of that family. My daughter May, right now, is my heir. Why? It wasn't put on that her arbitrarily. She's my heir because she's been born into my family. She's my daughter. And when my daughter, Karis, is born, she will receive the rights and privileges, few though they may be, of being a Humphrey. She will also be an heir. Same is true of Christians. When believers are born again to God's family, we receive an inheritance that comes with being part of that family. And Peter describes this inheritance in four different ways. He says it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, and it's kept for us. You guys just did a study of Daniel, so exile is fresh in your mind, which I'm grateful for. And these words become all the more powerful when we look back to the inheritance that was given to Old Covenant Israel. 
To be born into the people of Israel meant that you were born into an inheritance. Dwelling in the land that was formerly known as Canaan. And although Israel's inheritance was good, the book of Joshua describes it as flowing with milk and honey, it cannot hold a candle to the inheritance that we, as New Covenant Christians, possess. Listen to how Wayne Grudem describes the inheritance and the contrast between Old Covenant Israel's inheritance and New Covenant Christians' inheritance. This is Wayne Grudem. This inheritance of New Covenant Christians is thus shown to be far superior to the earthly inheritance of the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. That earthly inheritance was not kept for them, but it was taken from them in exile and later by Roman occupation. Even while they possessed the land, it produced rewards that decayed, rewards whose glory faded away. The beauty of the land's holiness before God was repeatedly defiled by sin. We know this to be true. Reread the book of Judges, and Israel becomes more and more like the nations around them. They lose the right to the inheritance that they possessed. And eventually, God brings Nebuchadnezzar to conquer Judah and take them into exile. They lost their right to that inheritance. But that's not the way that it is with New Covenant believers. Ours is an inheritance that will never, ever be taken away. Ours is an inheritance that won't rot or decay. Ours is an inheritance that will remain bright and glorious, illuminated for all eternity, and which will never be maimed or defiled by sin. When Jesus talks about where our treasure is, he says, store up treasure for yourself in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy, where thieves will not break in and steal. As Christians, we have treasure that will never perish, that will never fade away. Praise God for glorious mercy because we don't deserve it. It comes by grace because we've been born again into God's family. Think about how this talk of inheritance would land on exiles. Peter's writing to people who don't feel at home in the world. They feel marked out. They feel different. The early church was thought to be cannibals by Romans around them because of the way they talked about body of Jesus and blood of Jesus during communion. That's weird. They were different. They were strange. There's a lot of social pressure that goes on. And yet, though these readers hear this from the world, they're reminded that they have an inheritance. Though they may not feel like they fit in with everyone around them, they have an inheritance that is in heaven. That they can never have their hope taken away from them. They know that they have a future grace coming their way. I'm reminded of the often used sermon illustration about a poor man who received a letter in the mail. I don't know why a poor man had mail, but received a letter in the mail that he was actually the heir to a wealthy uncle who just passed away and that in a month's time he'll receive his inheritance. At that moment, when that man receives that letter, nothing has changed in his current circumstances. He's still poor. He still needs to worry about what he's going to eat. He still needs to worry about what he's going to sleep. But what has changed? Everything about the way that he views the world. Because he knows that he will only be poor for the next month. That he has an inheritance coming his way. That he will be wealthy. This is the way it is for exiled believers. 
because we've been born again to a living inheritance, we can live our lives knowing that this is a short time here on earth and we will receive a salvation ready to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And notice with me the means through which we have been born again unto this hope. Keep talking about the permanence of the inheritance. That's imperishable. That will last. Why is that? Because we've been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our newness of life and the inheritance that comes with it is inextricably tied to Jesus' life, to Jesus' resurrection. It's bound together. You can't disconnect those. Karen Jobes puts it well. She says, Christian hope is ever living because Christ, the ground of that hope, is ever living. When Jesus Christ died to atone for sins, was buried in the grave, he didn't stay dead, but he rose victorious and triumphant from the dead, never to die again. And as surely as you can kill Christ again, which you can't, so sure is our inheritance, because we are tied with Christ. God's mercy to exiles in granting them new birth through the gospel causes us to bless him. And so, as believers, we say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second way in which God's mercy is shown to exiles is through trials. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This at first for me, and probably for you, was really perplexing and kind of counterintuitive. How can trials be God's mercy? After all, trials hurt. Trials are genuinely painful. If you read the rest of 1 Peter, Peter has a lot to say about suffering. He's not naive to it. So how are these a channel of God's mercy? Well, in order to understand this, we need to look at the purpose for which God allows his people to undergo trials. And Peter tells us two things. He says, trials demonstrate the genuineness of believers' faith. So they demonstrate that faith is genuine. And by doing so, they result in praise and glory and honor. So let's look at these two one at a time. First, in trials, faith is tested and proven to be genuine. How we respond in the midst of circumstances reveals what we truly believe. When suffering comes our way, we're confronted with many questions. Is God loving? Why did this happen? What did I do to deserve this? Will Jesus ever do away with suffering? Life feels really hard right now. How do I know that it's actually going to stop? Is following Jesus worth it? If this is what happens to those who follow him? How we answer those questions reveals what we truly believe about God. Let me show you how this works. Because of God's common grace, life is full of many, many good things. So suppose I have a steady job, a good home, healthy family. Life is going well. How easy it is in that moment to say, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But now, suppose something comes up at work, and I lose my job. I respond with complaining, with grumbling, with bitterness. I'm angry at my wife, angry at my friends, angry at my boss, angry at God. Why? What changed in my heart during that circumstance? Nothing. Nothing changed. All that changed was the context in which my heart did what it did. How my heart responded. See, that trial revealed that my faith, though I could say, blessed be God, my faith was actually in my comfort, my stability, my healthy family. That trial served as a way to reveal the true nature of my faith. And this isn't to say that believers always respond to trials in the right way. I can say right off the bat, my daughter is sick this morning, my wife had to stay home with her, and I did not respond in the right way. That trial revealed my sinful response. But this is to say that because believers have a new nature, we've been born again, we have new affections, new desires, new longings, we also have a disposition towards repentance. So when we see ourselves responding sinfully in the midst of a trial, we turn from it and repent. So in reality, God is merciful to allow for trials to come our way because they serve as a way of opportunity to repent. They expose the nature of our faith. And if it's wrong, then we can turn from it and turn to God or they serve as an opportunity to grant assurance that yes, God, by your grace, by your spirit working in me, you allowed for me to have an appropriate response in the midst of this difficulty. Trials don't just serve as an opportunity for us to be disappointed. They can serve as an opportunity for our faith to shine like the sun. And this landed on me at the beginning of the summer in a very fresh way. I was sitting at my desk at work one day when I got an email from a lady at our former church. Uh, The son, the 22-year-old son of a longtime pastor at that church... A pastor who I had in class, a pastor whose office was right next to my desk at that church, a pastor who I got to know over the years. His 22-year-old son, on a mission trip to Northern Ireland, dropped dead, unexpectedly. He died with the rest of his life ahead of him. He had just graduated from college. He was enrolled to start seminary in the fall. And he died. His life was cut short. Far away from family, on the other side of the world. As I got that email, my heart broke for that pastor and for his family. I've never experienced that. I can't imagine what it's like to go through. And since that pastor and his son were both influential in that church, and since many from that church have been scattered, they decided graciously to live stream the funeral service. And so later that week, I was able to sit at my desk and have the service going as I worked. And at the bottom of my screen, as I sat there 600 miles away, I could see this pastor with his mourning family standing in the front row of the church, raising his hand, 
and singing, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. This is a man who had just gone through a devastating trial. And he could say with confidence, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. His faith was shining at that moment. And in Indianapolis, 600 miles away, I could see it. And I could be encouraged that the next trial that I face, I want to say with Pastor Chuck Stedham, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. I hope that this affects the way that you view your next trial. It's a chance for faith to shine. The second way in which trials are a mercy to us is that once faith is proven, it brings about a result. Future praise and glory and honor. And this isn't just the praise and glory and honor that belongs to God. No, this is the praise and glory and honor that God has as the source of all praise and glory and honor. And he gives to believers graciously. This is the well done that we receive from Jesus. How this future glory ought to motivate us in this present life. When we face a trial as exiles in this broken, fallen world. When we face a trial, the death of a son, the loss of a job, the hurt of relationships, the longing of singleness. When we face a trial... We can persevere through it, knowing that there is glory at the end, knowing that there is a hope. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we can say that this light and momentary affliction, affliction though it is, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. Brothers and sisters, see the mercy of God. In our trials. He gives us an inheritance that can never be taken away. He gives us the well done. That like a father delighting in his son or an artist delighting in his work. Causes our hearts to rejoice knowing that in this trial we have an opportunity to please our heavenly father. To bring our heavenly father delight. Every trial presents us with an opportunity To bring pleasure to the God of the galaxies. And God is so kind that even trials, hard though they may be, serve as an opportunity for him to dispense mercy and blessing and glory upon his people. In this life as exiles, we may not see Jesus. Peter says it right there, though you have not seen him. We may not see Jesus, but we can have joy in the midst of our suffering because we know That there is a good and sovereign purpose behind it. And that there is a future glory at the end of it. So, we can say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The third and final channel of God's mercy to exiles in our passage is God's mercy to exiles through the preaching of his word. Verses 10 through 12 are a challenging few verses. Not going to linger on them long. They could warrant an entire sermon by themselves. 
But today, I want to focus on what Peter says in verse 12. Look at that verse. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving, not themselves, but you. Do you hear the kindness of God in that passage? These prophets who prophesied thousands of years before Christ, they were serving new covenant believers. God so loves his children that he gives mercy through past revelation of the prophets. God was using these prophets to serve us, to show us mercy and grace. And, as Peter says, the same spirit that spoke through the prophets speaks today through the preaching of his word. We get a chance to get fresh mercy today as we hear the gospel proclaimed to us. Every time the gospel is preached in our midst, it becomes a flood of mercy which douses God's people in grace. So we can say, because of that mercy, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you see and you taste a little bit of glory this morning. But before we close, I want to show how this relates to where we are right now. I'm going to focus on three things. First and most importantly, as we, as Christians, become more and more marginalized, more and more pushed out of the center of society, as we see the culture move further and further away, as we see pain, as we see difficulties, we encounter suffering and trials at work, people look down on us, people respond in hurtful ways to us. May our first response be what Peter first says to his exiled readers. Blessed be God. Don't let present circumstances take our eyes off of God's mercy and kindness to us. We have been given a new birth, a new inheritance through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that new birth shows us that our first inheritance, our first birth, wasn't good enough. We had, in God's mercy, to be born again. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We once walked as natives to the world. We weren't exiles. We were well at home here. We had the same desires, the same longings. And God, in his mercy, gave us the new birth. He caused us to be born again. We should daily rejoice in this kindness and celebrate it. May we, as those who have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, remember that Peter's first words to exiles, the first thing that they need to be reminded of, is bless God. Don't forget God's glory. Don't forget God's mercy. Second, as we recognize our status as exiles in this world, we ought to be able to engage in faith. What do I mean by this? Well, as we get pushed further and further away, we can reach out and engage this world because we know that we ourselves were once lost, that we ourselves were once dead in our sins and our trespasses. No one is too far off from God's salvation. By the mercy of God, he can take a dead, lifeless corpse and pump it full of eternal life. He can grant new birth to the furthest lost person in the world. That means that we can reach out to our neighbors, our co-workers, our unbelieving friends and family in hope 
Because the good news that we preach of Jesus' perfect life, his sin-atoning death, his triumphant resurrection, can bring about the salvation of the worst sinners. We can engage the world, not in retreat, but engage it in faith. And finally, because of this reality, we can endure in hope. Suffering is everywhere in the book of Peter. Once you hit chapter 4, it seems like the, every other word that you read is suffering. He's not naive to it. He doesn't have a whitewashed, wishy-washy view of the Christian life. Indeed, suffering is everywhere in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. We serve, after all, as was reminded by the communion meditation, we serve a crucified Messiah. And yet, the New Testament is also full of promises of how we can endure that suffering and hope. The book of Hebrews mentions how the motivation of a future inheritance that we have waiting for us allows for us to endure in the present. Hebrews 10.34, the author of Hebrews says that his readers joyfully accepted the plundering of their property since they knew that they had a better possession and an abiding one. No amount of marginalization can steal our joy from us because we have an abiding, imperishable, undefiled inheritance waiting for us. That allows for us to endure in the present. We may feel at home today in this church building, surrounded by other believers. We ought to. We are the people of God. We are the family of God. But as we leave this place, we'll go into a world that's beginning to feel less and less like home. And as we do it, we can go out and say with Peter, Praise God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you. We praise you. Lord, you are kind to us in ways that we can never imagine. Lord, you have not repaid us according to our sins or dealt with us according to our iniquities. But in your mercy and your kindness, you have given those who trust in Jesus new life, new hope, new birth. And so we say with Peter, bless you, Lord. Praise you. All glory and honor and blessing belong to the Lamb who was slain. And we look forward to your return, Lord, when we will be able to have perfect fellowship with you, unhindered by sin, where we can stand around the throne for all eternity, delighting in and being delighted in by the God of the universe. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.